Hi, and welcome to Make It Make Sense with Sareka Thanendra Dharaman, a podcast that aims to demystify the less-than-transparent publishing industry by talking to authors from historically underrepresented backgrounds. I believe that the more we make sense of how things work on the inside, the less we feel as though we're on the outside. Because learning from other authors, editors and agents that have made sense of their journeys should hopefully inspire many more to embark on their very own. Each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee the things they've made sense of in their careers, as well as anything they'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. Today, for our first episode, we speak to Lizzie Damalola Blackburn, whose debut novel, Yinka, Where Is Your Husband?, publishes in March. Lizzie, born and raised in London, is a British-Nigerian author who wants to tell the stories that she and her friends have longed for but never seen, rom-coms where Cinderella is black and no one bats an eyelid. In 2019, she won the literary consultancy Pen Factor writing competition with an early draft of her novel which led her to her agent, Nell Andrews. Yinka was then submitted to publishers and was preempted in the UK and US as an era-defining debut. Lizzie is a generous and honest author. She aims to share as much of her knowledge with readers and fellow writers and has documented her publication journey, both on her own website, but also on the bookseller. I'll leave links to these in the show notes. Lizzie's debut novel, Yinka, Where Is Your Husband?, focuses on a 31-year-old British-Nigerian woman who wants to find love. She's armed with spreadsheets, some deadlines, and a few KPIs to help her do just that. The problem is, she also has a mum who thinks she's better qualified to find it for her. Throw in a few meddling aunties who frequently pray for her delivery from singledom, some friends that think she's going about it the wrong way, and what we land on is a woman on a desperate search to find herself. Through Yinka, Lizzie writes a novel that dips into cultural and societal expectation placed on women, topics such as colorism, texturism, and the overwhelming pressure to keep up. Lizzie, welcome to Make It Make Sense. I'm thrilled to have you as our very first guest. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to begin by asking, what did you want to be when you were younger? So when I was younger, I wanted to be a journalist. So even though I loved reading, I loved writing stories, for some reason I wanted to be a journalist. I don't know whether the profession itself, like the way it even sounds, like it sounds very intellectual, maybe that was the lure. Um, But my traditional Nigerian dad wanted me to be a lawyer. So um, when I went to uni, we kind of compromised and I ended up studying politics, which I don't know whether is a halfway house. And I didn't even do anything with it in the end because I ended up in the charity sector. Were there people around you that were writers or journalists? Um, I don't think so. No, no, no. I remember doing like a, a journalism course in my teens. Um, and I think that really sparked the interest in journalism. And I actually did try a bit of journalism on the side when I did start working. But then I realised, actually, it's not for me because I quite like creative writing where you can have more freedom to kind of let your imagination run wild. And with journalism, you kind of have to stick to a brief and um, 
dependent on who you're writing for, you have to kind of abide by the writing style as well. So I didn't find it as freeing, I guess. So is that why you started the Christian Dating Dilemmas blog, to find a space to write creatively? Um, so that actually came about because I was looking for um, like a mainstream fiction book with a Christian protagonist, um, ideally in the romance genre, but I just couldn't find any. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do something about it. <laughs> so I set up this blog called Christian Dating Dilemmas, and um, there were short stories on there you know, that had a Christian lead and they were going through some sort of love crisis or dating dilemma. And Yinka was one of the characters and her like storyline was all about, you know, she's a British Nigerian woman in her thirties feeling the pressure to settle down. That's amazing. So you, they were just stories, short stories that you put together. And then yeah. uh, I read that you asked for the readers to yes to, to vote what happens next yes exactly. at the end they'll have like different options and um my small following my friend and family <laughs> the best that's yes. all you need at the start they voted and <laughs> what should happen next then I base the next chapter based on what they and what option got the most votes just going back to your journey at what point did you know that this is what you wanted to do to write this story yeah, so I attended a blogging workshop, I think back in 2015. And then I met this amazing author called Jackie Lay. And um, at that point, um, I wanted to get some feedback on my writing as all writers, you know, come to a point of wanting to do. So I shared my blog with her. And in addition to her giving me some really helpful, constructive feedback, she said, I really like this Ginka character and I feel like you should turn it into a novel. So I kind of like took on a challenge, but I went into it blindly because I had no idea like the magnitude of, you know, writing a book. <laughs> and so I, I think for the first year and a half, I was just winging it. So I was just like going wherever the wind kind of like <laughs> blew me. And um, yeah, I just kind of like started, restarted, started, restarted. Um, and it wasn't until I read this amazing book which I recommend to all writers called Story Engineering by Larry mm -hmm. Brooks that I realized that storytelling is a craft and that it needs a story needs certain components in order for it to to work and in order for it to be engaging so structure you know compelling characters conflict and inciting incident and it sounds so basic now but mm. I had no clue at the time so that was like my light bulb moment and from that point forward that's when I started to invest in myself as a writer you know attending workshops reading more doing an online creative writing course mm -hmm. and that's how Yinka's story evolved. Great and do you, just going back to that moment with Jackie Lay do you think that it would have propelled you if she hadn't kind of nudged mm. you at that moment because I think as a writer you will always end up writing but it's really interesting what moment it is that really propels you so good question yeah yeah I feel like I would like to think that I would have written Yinka's story anyway but I feel like maybe my journey would have been a bit different or um maybe I wouldn't be at this point maybe I'll still be writing Yinka you know um but yes yeah, it's a good question Yinka is on a quest for love and you write that journey with a few obstacles in her way, some of which are hilarious, like her aunties that keep praying inappropriately over her or her mother and her blunt observations as to why Yinka hasn't found her husband. 
and some obstacles that she faces that are more serious, colorism and race and cultural expectations, which we'll touch on later. You also wrote a protagonist that is very grounded in her faith, which is not a common thread. Why was it important to you that this was the story you wrote as your debut novel? Um, it was a story that, because it was um, kind of inspired by my own experience. So when I was in my mid to early 20s, I was feeling the pressure as well. You know, my mum was asking me, you know, where's the boyfriend? <laughs> when are you going to settle down? And um, I feel like that struggle, that pressure is a universal thing. There's so many people out there who are going through what Yinka is going through. Um, and yeah, she just kind of gripped onto my heart. Like she held on and never let go. And I knew that if I didn't share this story, then no one would, or at least no one would say it in my voice. And I feel like I have a very um, special voice that's unique to me. And it would have been a great loss, I guess, um, to many readers, especially with Yinka being a Christian as well. Because like I said, we don't see enough like Christian protagonists. And I feel like it's very important for all readers, regardless of, you know, their race, their background, their upbringing, to be able to see themselves in the, the books to read. Um, and also the message of like self-love, which is the, you know, the utmost kind of important message from Yinka is so, so important, especially in this era of like social media where everyone's pictures just look so polished and perfect. And the bar of like beauty has just been like, it's getting higher and higher. I just feel like that message needs to, it's so important right now more than ever, especially when mental health, um, people are going through so many challenges. So it was a very important and personal story for me. And even though it was tough in terms of getting the book out there and I wanted to give up so many times, it was just something that I knew that I was called to do. I felt like it was my duty mm-hmm. to write this story. And I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad it's it's able to be read and in people's hands because I know it is hard to get you know, to write the novel is one thing, but to Mm. get your novel out for readers. Um, And I think there is something special in Yinka. I love that she uh, comes across lots of um, different opinions in her life, but it's very clear that she's constantly seeking for love and Mm. she's kind of unapologetic about it. And that's that's really charming that she's not... um, diverted by other people's opinions of how she handles it but she she really is honest about what she's seeking and I think that's such a nice thread that honesty that you write through the story that makes us fall in love with Yinka a bit um I I heard in another podcast that you also hope to subvert the trope of the strong black woman Mm. uh do you feel you managed to do that with Yinka I think so. And I hope readers think so as well. Um, you know, for a long time, we've seen the strong black women on TV or like the, the cool black chick. And I feel like those um, tropes are still needed because there are women who mm. are able to identify with them. I just feel like we need a range. Yeah. And it was very important for me to have like a diverse cast of like of black women. So you have Yinka that's a bit quirky and awkward. And you also have Nana, who is kind of like bohemian and mm. does what she wants. And then you have Allah, who's more, you know, glammed up and say as it is. And then Rachel, who's kind of like full of life and very positive and a, a bit of a joker. So I wanted um, Black women to be able to, to see themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I love sh- shows such as Insecure and Girlfriends, which I drew like lots of inspiration 
from because they have you know the range of of black women and um it was so refreshing to see in insecure in particular like a black woman who doesn't have all her stuff together mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like sometimes black women have that pressure to be perfect all the time and to to not make mistakes mm-hmm. and you know I've read so many countless like chiclets and romance where you know white characters are able to be a hot mess so you know <laughs> why can't <laughs> black characters and black women have the their moment as well because we're not perfect so it's true I really wanted to yeah subvert that trope it was very important for me to do that I think yeah it's really interesting because you do that so well in also how you um wrote Yinka's kind of breakdown when she was starting to do things that she felt others would really judge her for and she started um lying and maybe avoiding uh, some heavy conversations or uh, telling her family or her friends the truth and I think that's that's so uh, true to someone who has to live through a lot of pressure within her own environment, not just external pressure, but what's coming at her from her mother and her aunts and her friends. Yeah. Um, and I think you did that really well that um, I agree. We should see messy. You sh- we should see messy women. We should see <laughs> women that don't have their stuff all together all the time. And it makes uh, for a more realistic uh, telling of our lives. Right. Mm-hmm. You write the British Nigerian experience so authentically with their love of food, love for meddling and that strong family community that Yinka is sometimes forced to surround herself with. Was this in part easy to write or more difficult, as you've said, you drew from your own life experience? And I can imagine it's about striking a balance of how much is found on the page. Yeah, I'd probably say I really enjoyed like touching on like the Nigerian culture. and you know my parents both have like thick you know Nigerian accents Mm. so it wasn't too hard to kind of dig into that voice especially with my dad like my dad is very blunt you know (laughs) it's a bit like Yinka's mom where it just says whatever's on his mind and not think about how it might affect a person (laughs) so I was kind of able to draw on that and also I like Nollywood films as well so Nollywood films are like Nigerian films um Mm. And I just love how they have a range of like colorful eccentric characters and um, especially the comedy ones as well. So I did watch quite a few Nollywood films while I was writing Yinka. Um, so yeah, I didn't really find it difficult, but I have to give a mm-hmm. shout out to one of my copy editors, um, Deborah Balagon, because she really went through Yinka with, with a fine tooth comb and she made sure that the cultural references were like mm. spot on because it would have been so embarrassing if I got, you know, a Yoruba word wrong because I don't speak Yoruba. Okay. Um, so I had to like either ask my mom or yeah. Google <laughs> certain yeah. words or like um, certain foods as well. Like just she just made sure that everything was watertight. So thank you so much, Deborah. Um, yeah, she was amazing. <laughs> That's great. So you you still relied I think I read somewhere that you relied on, maybe it was in your acknowledgement, sensitivity readers still for different yes. parts and themes of yeah. your novel. Can you speak to us as to why that's important? Especially also, it's interesting to note that even though you come from that background, mm. you still did that work to um, find other people to to really check that it's all as it should be. Yeah, so I think just to make sure that it's really authentic as well, and, you know, especially with um, 
So I don't want to give away any spoilers, but with mm. one character, she has um, she finds that her orientation, her I guess sexual orientation, mm-hmm. right or, preference. or preference, or preference, yeah, or relationship preference, maybe. Yeah. Yes, but word to you, yes, yeah. So because I'm, you know, I wasn't writing from my from that experience. Yeah. I really wanted to make sure that um, those who kind of identify as that um, felt like it was an authentic discovery and authentic um, journey as well. So um, the last thing I would want to do is to offend anyone or to not write something that isn't accurate or honest so I think it's just good to be sure (laughs) and to give yourself a rest of mind as well as an author. We touched on the topics that you weave into the novel such as colorism and texturism just to define those two terms for people who may not know texturism is a preference for hair with smoother or looser texture and the discrimination against people with kinkier coarse hair. Colorism is a practice of favoring lighter skin over darker skin. So you touch on how those things impact Yinka in the everyday and you write quite a moving scene in the book where we see the repercussions of colorism and texturism that Yinka faces. She shares what she did or that repercussion with another character in the book without giving too much away, um, Jackie. And Jackie says to Yinka, I want to read this from the book. And do you know what the sad thing is? It has made our people believe this lie that the closer one is to being white, the better one is. Sounds silly when I say it aloud, doesn't it? But a lie can appear true when it has been told for centuries. Yeah, I wanted to show that, um, you know, colorism, texturism, um, for some people it can be an everyday thing and it might not be as Mm -hmm. in your face, but it can be from, you know, what you see on TV. So, you know, in music videos, we don't see you know, a lot of dark-skinned women um, in movies, you know, lighter-skinned women tend to be the, the love interests. And I wanted to show, like, how these images, these messages, how that can have a knock-on effect on a dark-skinned woman with kinky, forcey hair, and how she internalises that, and how that makes her think, okay, am I beautiful enough? Am mm. I attractive? can I find a man if like these are all the women that they seem to be going for? At least that's what the media is telling me. So mm-hmm. I wanted to show how that can kind of like affect a dark skinned woman's self-esteem and also to show, you know, how colorism could be very subtle. And it's sad because colorism mainly comes from our community, the black community. Mm. And we can be the ones that's perpetuating it and fueling the idea as well. So if we don't nip it in the bud, it's going to carry on for generations. Um, I don't know what the solution is, but I just wanted to make sure Mm. that that message was out there so that people could do their own self-reflection and have conversations as well. And also to be more aware of what colorism looks like, even if it's very subtle. So for example, with Yinka's mom always making comments about Yinka's hair, um, she's fueling that idea of texturism that only mm. straight, loose, defined hair is beautiful. So if people know mm. what it looks like, they can call it out and educate other people as well. But they might mm. not know that they're being colorist or making remarks which are quite offensive. 
Yeah, it's a fair point. And also by calling it out, I think people sometimes are so like you wrote in the in the book that something can appear true when it's repeatedly said over and over again. I think that happens with the generations before us that no one's ever said that that isn't the right yeah. thing to say or um, there's a different way to look at things. So I think it's a really, I, I loved that part of um, the well, story. Um, lastly, before we go to your three things, I wanted to talk about Yinka and how you write her mm. faith. Um, you present us with a protagonist who's ultimately unfailing and, as we said before, unapologetic in her desire to find love. But you also built characters around her that believe uh, of love and relationships in a different way from Yinka. But you wrote all of those uh, differences from a place of respect. Um, and interestingly for me, I felt like you did the same thing with faith and religion. And I think you wrote Yinka as someone who really is grounded in her faith and that leads a lot of how she lives her life. But she's also amongst these women who are quite religious and who uh, use prayer uh, in a way <laughs> that <laughs> I, I don't know if that's how um, it's meant to be spoken on to people. But I think it's interesting that you gave us the gamut of uh, how love can look like, how relationships can look like for different people, but also mm. how faith and spirituality can look like. She's surrounded by skeptics, but as we said, she's also surrounded by those that are more mm. religious. Why was it important for you to cover the breadth of, of those experiences in this mm, novel? Good question. Um. So sometimes I wonder, is there a reason why there's not many Christian protagonists in mainstream fiction? And sometimes I wonder if it's because, um, sadly, there's this stereotype of Christians of being too preachy, pious, righteous. Mm. So if you say the word Christian, they're like, oh, well, I don't want to mm. read that. They're going to try and convert me. So <laughs> it was very important for me to make sure that there was balance in, in Yinka. Hence why you have um, someone who doesn't, who isn't religious and provides, you know, valid mm. reasons for not believing in God and people are entitled to their beliefs and opinions. Um, but I also wanted to show like how Christianity is, I wanted to show like the faith side, because you have religion, which is all about, you know, going to church and I guess like the do's and don'ts. Mm. But for me personally, like my faith is, I guess more about the relationship with with God, with mm -hmm. the higher power. So I wanted to kind of show how Yinka has a special relationship with God and how she sees him as a friend and how it's acting more like what she does in private behind closed doors. So, you know, the prayer time mm -hmm. that she spends and how she's able to kind of like confide in him, especially with her her dad's not um, having passed away. So mm -hmm. um, I kind of wanted to show a different side of Christianity from what people kind of see it as or what I guess the stereotypical kind of mm. like of Christianity um yeah so, so that's why I kind mm. of had that balance
So let's move on to the three things you've made sense of on your publishing journey. The first of which focuses on the edits post book deal. But before we speak about this, could you give us a quick rundown of the process beforehand, how you got your agent and so on? Yeah, so um, in 2019, I entered the literary consultancy Pen Factor competition. Um, thank God I did because I wasn't going to because I was a bit like, oh, am I good enough? Um, it was a, sure. it was a last minute. Uh, did yeah. I read some of that? Yeah, yeah. What made you submit to the competition at the very last minute? Um, a combination of things. I would say um, my husband. Mm. You know, he said you've got nothing to lose. And also, again, going back to my faith, like God was like, just go for it. Mm. Um, so that kind of like got feeling like, do you know what? I might as well just throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. And I was actually praying to get longlisted. So when I got shortlisted, <laughs> I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> so when I won, I was like, what? <laughs> Imagine if you didn't. I know. If you didn't yeah. apply. That's amazing. Yeah. So um, Nell Andrews, she was one of the um, judges on the mm-hmm. panel. And then after the competition, um, I emailed her because I followed up with all the judges mm-hmm. and I sent them the, my full chapter because they all said that, oh, I would love to read more. So I was like, OK, here you go. <laughs> and then Nell Andrew was like, oh, I'm so happy you got in touch because I was going to contact you. Oh, great. Um, and to cut a long story short, she invited me to her office and then she asked for the first 50 pages of Yinka and um, a synopsis. And then... Yeah, she offered me formal presentation after reading. Just from those 50 pages and the synopsis? Well, she did ask me to kind of like, um, she gave me some feedback. Yeah. And then I worked on that before I sent her the 50 pages. Oh, and then, okay. Yeah, and then she, yeah. Great. That is going to take me on. And did you say before that you re- reached out to the judges? It's not that it was part of the prize, but you? Yes. That's great. I, I reached out, yeah, yeah, because I, I thought um, it will be a good way to kind of like to keep my name on their radar. Yeah. And the great thing about now is that she signed me on, even though I didn't have a full manuscript, because a few of the judges said, oh, once you finish your manuscript, mm. you know, get back in touch. But she was the one who took me on, um, even if even though I didn't have a full manuscript. So I really appreciate her for doing that yeah. and taking um not that gamble, but she had great belief and potential in me as a writer and an Inca story. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's the that's the case, that it wasn't a gamble because she saw what was sitting there in that story and, mm. and she knew what you could write. Um, I, I did notice in the acknowledgements you thanked Nell Andrews for um, working with you, even though your writing wasn't up to scratch at that point. Yes, but So yeah. I guess this is what you meant, that she gave you feedback, which mm. I think is so important in the whole process for writers to understand that it's also really, um, it, it's a really good thing to be able to take feedback, work on it and send it back. That's, that's what agents also want to see, right? Yes. And also you'd be surprised you would grow as a writer throughout the mm, process. I'm like sure. Even when I compare my manuscript um, and my writing itself from when we submitted to publishers to, um, you know, the finished, I guess, manuscript, it's like night and day. Mm. Um, and there were things that my editors were pointing out in my writing that I was, um, I needed to work on. So you'd be surprised, like, how much you can grow when you get feedback. So that's a nice segue into the first thing you make sense of for us, and that is the editing process post-book deal and how it works when you have a US and UK deal. Mm. 
Can we talk just a little about the edits that come before that with Nell before you go out to um, uh, before you go out on submission to publishers? So uh, once I finished my manuscript, and it took just under a year for me to finish, and lots of editing, rewrite. <laughs> um, she offered me more like feedback um, just to make sure that it was like as best as we can get it before we mm -hmm. submit to publishers. And I think she submitted it to maybe 18 imprints. So imprints are kind of like they sit under a publisher and there's different mm -hmm. like publishing houses within a publisher, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, within 24 hours, um, Katie, my editor from Viking, she preempted. And that's basically when an editor loves a book so, so much that they offer the author a deal that is very enticing, that mm -hmm. they accept it and there's not going to be like an auction or bidding yes. war with the other publishing houses. So I accepted that um, that deal. So on that call with Katie, did she already share some ideas of edits that could be made or was it just to say how much she loved your book? Yeah, she, she, did, she did hint that, she, you know, changes but I kind of yeah. thought it would be like just little light changes like <laughs> just a few copy editing like that's it I never knew it would be quite a lot so extensive yeah so that was like a huge shock when I got my first round of notes just like maybe six pages or so <laughs> wow which I think is normal right because yes, yes. you just assume that you've written a book then your mm. agent's seen the book and given you notes and you exactly. assume that it's, it's pretty good to go and someone's bidding on it yeah but, um it's very common and I think the majority of books go through different uh edits could you give us a breakdown of because I, I guess for writers that don't understand what uh, happens at that point of the process, what are the different types of edits that your UK and US editor mm. um, go through with you? Yeah, so the first edit will be like, I think it's called structural edit, which is like the, the most meaty one. So they will look at everything from the plots mm -hmm. to um, characters, um, plot holes and things like that you might need to juggle things around so I had to kind of change shift a few chapters and that had a knock-on effect on the the latter ones so it's basically like when you kind of mess up your manuscript and try to fix it back again <laughs> <laughs> um and then the next edit depending on how well you do that you might need to do another round of that in my case I still had to do more structural mm -hmm. edits because there were just still some things that wasn't working. And um, I remember my US editor saying that she wanted to see more of Nana, that she loved Nana. Mm. <laughs> they wanted like more scenes with her and um, some of the, I think the Yinka's cousins, she didn't feel like they were distinctive enough. So again, mm -hmm. having to flesh their personalities. Um, so again, had to do another round of edit and that was really tough too. And then once they feel like all the, sh the plot holes have been tied and the characters have been fleshed out and the structure is, is fine. Then um, I think it's the, the copy editing stage. So you will have a, a copy editor that will kind of like make sure that all the references are correct. Um, the timing is spot on. Mm. Um, just kind of like fact checks, fact check everything as well. Mm -hmm. And once, that, once that's done, you have a proofreader kind of like 
look out for typos, grammar, like spelling mistakes, extra spaces, things like that. Mm -hmm. And at the point of your copy editor, is that where you reach out to sensitivity readers or had you already done that? Um, When did I do that? I think, yeah, I think when the copy editor Mm -hmm. was looking through it, I think at that point, that's when I reached out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so so there is still like you still can make a few changes if you need mm-hmm. to, like small smaller changes during the copy editing stage. Okay. Um, but I think when it gets to the proof reading stage, it's best to kind of like leave okay. it alone so you don't. Mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, but that's really interesting to know. So any major changes, you kind of have to to tackle it at the structure. Yeah, it's best edit. To do it then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Mm. Um, And was there, did you feel going through the book, I'm assuming you go through the manuscript over and over and over again, was Mm. there, did you feel like, oh, I just want to change this little bit? Like how did you find a point to just cut yourself off? I think when it got to the proofreading stage, I I remember sending like um, my, I guess, editor assistants, like more changes, like minor changes in an email. Mm-hmm. and it was getting a bit like it's a bit too like okay Lizzie just let it go now don't open a book anymore <laughs> I was like on page 67 <laughs> can we pick up this word <laughs> but it must be hard I can't imagine you know you that that's the closest it's getting to you know being printed it, yeah. it must be tough to just let it go and say no <laughs> let it <Yeah>. be <laughs> And the process of the structural edits, copy edits, how does that work when you have UK and US editors? Are they sending you their notes separately or do they work on it together? So um, my US and UK editor, they've worked together in the past before, so Mm -hmm. they have a great relationship. So um, my UK editor, she would read it first and then she would kind of like write her notes and then um, my US editor would read it afterwards and Mm -hmm. then she would, I guess, add her notes to what Katie had already written and then um there will also be some comments as well under manuscript itself so I have the notes on a kind of Microsoft document mm-hmm. and then also comments as well on the actual manuscripts so I had to kind of like I guess make sure that I'm mindful of both mm-hmm. making the changes and how do you strike that balance then of the because I guess what's important to note is also that the notes from editors and comments from editors are obviously their suggestions, but it's also you Mm. as the author that makes a decision as to what you shift or change or delete or include or whatever it is. So how do you uh, find confidence in that? Yeah. So um, once they sent me the notes, they they told me to like read it, you know, have a few days to think about it and then we'll have a call. And we can discuss mm. anything you're not sure about or any clarity or anything they don't agree with. And for the most part, like, they were spot on. Like I agreed mm-hmm. with, with most of their notes. There was one um, thing that I don't want to give too much away, but mm-hmm. the plot twist, they didn't feel like the reveal was as um, surprising because of the setup. So the setup wasn't needed some fixing. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't like figure out what it was, like how to fix it. And mm-hmm. I had a, like a light bulb moment and I knew how to fix it, but it would require a lot of work and it would mm-hmm. require a lot of rewrites. Um, 
rewriting chapters, adding new chapters as well. So when I had a conversation with my editors, they believed in me, but at the same time, they were a bit like, okay, we don't want you to kind of mess up the story because mm-hmm. we like lots of what you've got already. So we don't want you to kind of play around a bit too much, but yeah. they trusted me, yeah. and which was great. And when they did kind of like see the final kind of um, manuscript before we got to the copy editing stage, there was it was just so heartwarming to hear the feedback. And mm. They were like, oh my God, like you really showed your growth as a writer because the way you kind of sorted out the kind of the plots of it's great and it works mm. and um, it's more compelling now. So now when a twist is revealed, it's more of a surprise. Mm. Um, but yeah, it took a lot of work to get there. So on the point of receiving feedback about your own work, is that something you've become used to through the process? Yeah, I think um, what I found challenging when I first got the the notes was, am I able to do this? Mm. And I even when I got the book deal, I still kind of felt like a novice, like, right? I still kind of felt like an amateur. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt like, oh my gosh, maybe they're expecting more than I can give them. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of felt like, I think I had a, I went, what, what is it? Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah I was yeah. going through that. I was like, yeah, I, I don't think I can deliver on this. <laughs> <laughs> Even though they had, uh, you'd yeah. had a preempt, you'd won that prize, you'd <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it, what our mind tells us? Yeah, but somehow I did. (laughs) As writers, we do often swing between complete confidence and imposter syndrome. I want to go back to when you entered the Literary Prize because I think it's important to note that you contacted and submitted to judges after the competition ended. This isn't something that maybe people are aware they can do, especially if you've been, obviously if you've won the prize, but especially if you've been uh, long-listed or short-listed? I just felt like, you know, why not? And as because they all said in their feedback um, that they oh, we, we want to read more, I kind of like jumped on that and I used mm-hmm. it as a as a, a hook, I guess, in my, my email as a, mm-hmm. as a reason why I'm contacting them. So I think it's just kind of taking that leap of faith. And I think that's why applying for competitions are great because you never know what will come out of them. Mm. You know, if you get shortlisted or if you win, like there's no harm following exactly. up with the agents. Yes. The worst thing they could say is, okay, thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, or nothing, but or no- it's still, yeah. you're, you're right. There's nothing wrong in contact. And I think maybe writers don't realize that they can, especially after a long listing or short listing that you can approach. It's a great reason to approach um, an agent or a judge. We touched on this a little, but how much work did you and Nell put into your MS before going out on submission to publishers? Yeah, it was a lot. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a lot. Um, because, you know, bear in mind, I don't have like an MA in creative writing. So while I was going through this process, I was learning on the go as well. Mm-hmm. And um, Nell was great because she has a great editorial eye. Mm-hmm. And she gave me notes, like six pages, seven pages of notes. And um, that was kind of like, I held on to that. So I remember when I was yeah. writing Yinka, I would go back and see, okay, have I kind of included that in my story? Yeah. And her insights were incredible because like she touched on things that I didn't think of. So for example, with the setting being in Peckham, I think I mentioned it in, in like in passing, okay, set in Peckham, but mm. I didn't really like bring it to okay. life. Mm-hmm. And she was the one that kind of like emphasized the importance of that. Yeah. And to kind of make Peckham another character in itself. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so she was really great with that. And also, Yinka was a beast in terms of like the number of characters, the storylines. Mm. There's so many at the moment, but there were there was more. There was before. more. Wow. Yeah. So she really helped me to kind of make the story more focused as well. Yeah. And also kind of draw on like Yinka having to grapple grapple between being Nigerian and British. Like she helped mm-hmm. me to kind of like flesh that out a bit more. So yeah, I did a lot of work um with now and um yeah she was really great at keeping me accountable too um because obviously when you're writing by yourself like there's no mm. hard deadline mm. um and I remember at one point she was like okay we need to set like a hard deadline now <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I really buckled down and and finished Shinka. Do you remember what that deadline was from when you received notes from Nell and when you were able to give back? Um... Yeah so so I got my agent August 2019 Mm -hmm. um I think around autumn time she sent me her first round of notes then Jan her second round Mm -hmm. of notes after I sent her what I had done Mm -hmm. um so from Jan to May that's when I really buckled down and finished Jinka And you spoke about a few changes already with bringing the setting to be more prevalent in the novel and building up to the plot twist. Were there any other fundamental changes you remember making? I think sometimes it helps to know what types of changes can come uh, from a finished manuscript. Um, Fundamental changes. I guess like I remember (laughs) my youth editor was like telling me that, oh, in some areas you're doing more telling than mm. showing especially mm-hmm. when it came to like the colorism and the therapy um chapters mm. so I had to do a lot of work on that because I had a lot more to say about colorism but it <laughs> kind of seemed as if like my author voice was coming through yeah <laughs> so I had to let the characters um like lead yeah. and what you read out earlier even though it's so short I feel like it encapsulates what mm-hmm. colorism is yes. and sometimes you don't need to go into so much detail write paragraphs you just have Mm -hmm. to make have that dialogue which kind of like encapsulates everything yeah um and what else did I have to change um I think the the plot twist that was the hardest Mm -hmm. one that was the biggest one I would say okay um Mm. oh and also with Nana as well so Nana um so she is an inspiring fashion designer and she ends up kind of launching her fashion business Mm -hmm. however in like the my early drafts um, were the ones that my editors saw. We didn't see the process. <laughs> we just uh, saw Nana kind yeah. of saying, I want to be a fashion designer. And then towards the end, she's a catwalk. Fashion... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they wanted to see like, okay, Magic. how did you get there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But I think it is interesting when you write, because you've got this idea in your head when you start that that is what you want her trajectory to be, but then you don't think, oh no, but there needs to be steps. Yeah. There needs to be her actually working on her designs or, you know, having done other dresses that exactly. uh, Yinka even wears. But yeah. I was like, oh, the, the reader will get it, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know what a fashion designer does, yeah, exactly. you know, they, they have to do stuff and then it gets into a fashion show. Um, was there anything that you initially didn't want to change, but then went through the motions of it and saw that it really impacted the story? Um, I remember my editors at one point was saying, do we have too many men in, <laughs> in a dating book? No, 
<laughs> and they were like, oh, do we need to get rid of one of them? But I was like, no, nope, no, I'm not getting rid of any of the men. I'm so happy I stuck to my guts because yeah. I felt like they all play a part in terms of Yinka's journey. Mm-hmm. And she learns something from each from of each them one. as well. So, yeah. yeah, that's true. How do you know to stick to your gut in something like that? I think that might be um, important because that's that's something that you learn as you're going through the process. How do you know that that's mm. the point you stick on? I think if you feel like the story is going to suffer as a result and mm it's going to take away from the story as opposed to, you know, making it better and stronger. I think that's how, you know, and you have that kind of gut feeling anyway, Mm. but the most part your editors, you know, will be right. Um, Don't get me wrong. But then there might be some times where I think you all realize there's a problem or there's an Mm -hmm. issue. We just don't know what it is. And the fact that you all know that it's an issue is a good thing because that means that needs to be looked into whatever Mm -hmm. the issue is, Mm -hmm. but it might be that you're, solution would be the one that you go with mm-hmm. yeah. yeah as I guess then it's being open to what feedback you're receiving and not uh getting defensive or or thinking exactly one way about something but to at least be open to consider it even if it's not something you you uh, go ahead with okay so let's move on to the second thing you wanted to help make sense of which is the marketing and publicity side of publishing your novel I'm really intrigued by this why was this your second point yeah because like I knew that it happened but I didn't know like okay, how does the <laughs> author kind of fit into this yes and I'm naturally introverted as well so I was wondering okay how am I going to promote this book mm-hmm um, but now I know that with marketing, so they kind of like do all the things that are paid for. So whether that's like social media ads or like if you go to a bookstore and you see um, the book has some sort of like display and merchandise, that's all paid for. Mm-hmm. Whereas with publicity, it's more what the publicist pitch, pitches for. So they will contact like magazines and um, journalists and newspapers to to read Inca and then to either like provide a review or mm-hmm. maybe the author might write an article for them in exchange for like promotion um so yeah so I kind of learned more about what each function does and mm-hmm. how the author kind of fits into that as well mm-hmm. and you said that you are generally an introvert how does that work for you when you have to for instance, do a podcast yeah. recording or speak to other people, or I don't know if you will do book signings. How how does that make you feel? Are you coming to terms with that as part of the process? Yeah, so now I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a huge growth in myself as a person. But initially I was a bit nervous and I did have a conversation with my publicist mm-hmm. um, because not many people know this, but I had um, speech therapy because mm-hmm. I was quite insecure about my speech. And I do have mild dyspraxia where sometimes like long words like how to pronounce them kind of like puts kind of phrase me mm-hmm. um so just being open for publicists really helped from the mm. get-go I was able to have media training as well so kind of like brainstorm all the possible questions that could be asked and just mm-hmm. like think about certain answers and have boundaries as well mm-hmm. and how to kind of like navigate more difficult questions and um, I think just the more that you do it, <coughs> the more comfortable you will get. 
mm-hmm. like I couldn't have done this like two years ago mm-hmm. um but now I'm like yay if you me for <laughs> another <podcast>. one <laughs> <laughs> It's so great. It's so great for me because all I sent you was, I think, a website and it was great that you said yes. Um, When you are unsure about things like um, speaking engagements, you said that you approached the publicist and uh, they helped with media training. Mm. Is Is there a process in which you choose who you go to? Do you, do you ever go back to Nell when you feel uncertain about things? Mm. Is it always your editors that you touch base with? How does that work? Yeah, good question. Um, so I guess like with all things like publicity, marketing, you know, publicity and marketing team, I guess, um, I have a very good relationship with Nell. So mm-hmm. when it comes to things like my internal feelings, like I'm battling with second book syndrome, um, you know, my mel- I, I don't feel I can do it. Like all those like negative thoughts. Yeah. Nell's like always on the other end of the line. She's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and also my editors as well. I feel like I can be open and honest with them. So if I'm struggling That's with good. like... Um, a chapter or just writing mm. in general that they're so supportive mm-hmm. um and they're just like they get it as well they've been in the business for a very yeah. long time so there's nothing that kind of throws them off like <laughs> yes. okay we've seen it before and you will get through it and we're here to support you yeah as well. yeah, that, yeah. That, that's uh, that's good to know yeah they have done it time and time again mm. um and is there something that you really enjoy? I know you were cautious of it before, nervous about it before. Is there now something you enjoy more than, do, mm. you, do you enjoy social media? Do you enjoy podcasts? What, what is it that yeah. you love? I, do you know what? I really enjoy podcasts. I really enjoy yeah. like, you know, just meeting the interviewer and just having a conversation with them. It's, it's yeah. quite nice. Um, and, you know, social media isn't as scary as I thought it would be as well. So I do love kind of like engaging with other readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they do tag me in their post and they've done like a review of Yinka, mm. you know, I always try to make an effort to say thank you and so glad to hear that you enjoy it. And mm-hmm. I've made a few like, I guess, virtual friends yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I do enjoy yeah, podcast and just engagement with bloggers book bloggers on on social media do you think it's important for you to have a presence on social media or is it something you do for yourself Mm, good question um I think it helps and I think it depends don't take this as gospel but sometimes I think it depends Mm. on the book as well like Mm. Yinka is such a contemporary book and I feel like if I wasn't on social media like I feel like readers would be just curious about okay who's this author like yeah I want to know a bit about her and what inspired mm-hmm. her and um some people have come have messaged me and said you know thank you so much for writing Inca I feel seen um I never read a book like this before and I feel like I would have kind of missed out on that yeah. like just having just kind of hearing from readers directly the mm. impact Inca's had on them so I think it's twofold so let's move on to your third point. And this is something you'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. And that is the second book syndrome. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know where to start. <laughs> um, first of all, I would say it, it's, I've been told it's normal. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I think so. 
when you're writing book one, you're kind of writing it in private. You know, I've been with Yinka for a very long time as well, like five years. So I've had the space to kind of like to write at my own pace, to grow. Mm. But whereas with the second book, you're on, it's a deadline, you're on contract. And also there's the pressure from book one as well, especially if there's like, there's been a buzz mm-hmm. um, with the book. So um, it can be a bit like crippling. And you, in my case, like it's not wanting to let people down, like people mm-hmm. who kind of invested in me um, and also not wanting to let myself down as well. So I have been finding it um, very challenging. And um, I'm so lucky to have the support of like, you know, my editors, mm-hmm. um, my agent, my husband, even my, my faith, my family and friends who are just reminding me that it's part and part of the process. And mm-hmm. you had these feelings when you're writing Yinka, um, the feelings of doubt, you know, will I ever get there? Mm-hmm. Um, not feeling good enough. So just having to go through it, even though it's very painful, um, it's just having to trust a process that, okay, I will get through it. Yeah. There is light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, you've done it before and it's and it's not meant to be just because you've done it once. I guess it's not meant to be easier as such because mm. you still are dealing with imposter syndrome or, mm. or stress of a deadline. Um, so ha- where do you start? Where do you uh, do you wait for an idea? Do you uh, workshop a few things? What, yeah. What's your process? So one thing I would say is that when you're writing the second book, don't be surprised if you have an idea, end up writing like 40,000 words and have to abandon it. Mm. So I think at the end of the day, you have to write a story that is going to work, I guess, and like that also would sell. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So people don't yeah. think about the business side, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, the publishers need to f- feel confident in the, the story idea. Um, and so, but also, you know, your editors and agents are there to help you so they can mm-hmm. help you brainstorm ideas and things like that. Mm-hmm. The pressure of a deadline and the pressure you place on yourself of not letting your readers down, your agent and editor down, that must be difficult to write through at times. But as you say, you have all this support with your team around you. How did you or how do you keep up your confidence in this period? I think not to take it personally, because at the end of the day, like, mm. we all want, you know, a great book. Yeah. And um, I feel like nothing's ever wasted. So even if an idea is rejected, then you, you still have had that kind of time to write and to kind of work on your writing and to explore the ideas and the characters mm-hmm. as well. Mm. So you won't have that what if kind of question in the back of your mind because you tried it, but mm-hmm. it just didn't work. And it could be a case that maybe it'll work years from now, but maybe just not now. Yes. Um, so I think it's the case of like, just having that self-belief and um, reminding yourself that you are a writer mm-hmm. as well and you can do it. And everyone goes through this. Like, I think that's what's hard because yeah. you just see the finished product, you see the book and you feel like, you see the glossy side, like, oh yeah, like she's an author. Like we didn't yeah. see the struggle. We don't see the hard yeah. work, the tears, the lonely nights and things like that. So um, I think just a lot of like, meditation um Mm -hmm. in my case prayer Mm -hmm. um and just reminding myself that I I can do this Mm -hmm. a lot of what of affirmation that's the way yeah 
Yeah. You touched on the business side of publishing and how that impacts the decisions that are made and the stories that are told. Um, How much does that come into your mind or how much do those external things that you now know about having Mm. published your first novel, how much does that come into your mind when you're writing your second or or mulling over ideas or are you able to separate the two? Mm. Um, I think because I had a recent experience, I think now would be at the forefront of my mind, like the the business side of things. going forward but I don't think it was on my mind as much before mm-hmm. um and it's a hard one because I was I always encourage writers to kind of write the story that they're passionate about but don't think about you know the market mm. just kind of write what's true to you and it's very hard to kind of like strike to try a balance of doing that but also having to also consider like the the market as well mm-hmm. So to bring this to a close, are there any other words of wisdom you'd like to share with other writers? Um, I would say don't give up. I know it sounds very mm. cliche. but no, um, say it over and over again. <laughs> I feel like writing to hear that time and time yeah. again. Yeah. And also, I don't know what it is about writers, but like sometimes we're sh- sh- like a bit shy about saying, about calling ourselves a writer or telling mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. But actually, I found that when I t- started to tell people, it helped because Number one, it meant that I had people that I was accountable to. Yeah, yeah. And also people need to know they are writing a book so that they can give it a time to write it because mm. it's not all the time you'd be able to have long conversations on the phone with your friends or to go out, you know, mm-hmm. every single time. But if they know that you're writing a book, they'd be able to kind of respect your time and maybe mm-hmm. even give you more notice as well Yeah, in terms of like planning things. So mm-hmm. um, don't be afraid to tell people that you're writing a book. I think that's t- that that's really tough to call yourself a writer or an author when you don't have something physical to show for yeah. it. But you're right, <laughs> it's also an affirmation when you hear it exactly. being said back to you and, mm. and being given a space to speak about it. That's really, really important. Thank you so much, Lizzie, for being our first guest and sharing your publishing journey with us so openly and honestly. I think this is so valuable for writers who find themselves at any stage of the process. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I loved your questions as well. If you enjoyed this episode of Make It Make Sense with Sarika Thanendra Tharaman, I would love if you would rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to help others find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Make It Make Sense.